Theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. That's, that's Edwards, Edwards. It's Fuller. It's not Edwards and it's not Spurgeon and it's not Luther. It's Fuller. It's Fuller, <coughs> the polemicist. Now we're going to look at Fuller, the systematic theologian. Uh, <coughs> John Ryland, Jr., early in 1814, uh, requested Fuller to write a theology to produce at least one a month as, as he would organize a, a theology. He wanted Fuller to do this. So Fuller began to do it, but then he got sick and he couldn't, he couldn't follow through every month. And so he, sporadically when he felt good, he would write something. And he was unable to, um, <clears throat> to finish this. But as far as he went, it's really a charming attempt. But he, he believed in the necessity of it. And so the, the first thing that he did was uh, yeah, okay. He talked about the nature and importance of an intimate knowledge of divine truth. If you're going to develop a system, then you have to have an intimate knowledge of divine truth. A thorough knowledge of the Bible is first. And so <clears throat> divine knowledge is to be derived from the oracles of God. The oracles of God contain a system of divine truth. Christians should not rest satisfied with first principles, but should go on to perfection. He says, now the Bible is not set out as a system in the same way that nature is not set out as a system. But scientific study shows us that there is a system present and we can understand nature and understand the world and understand the universe if we begin to develop a system by which we can categorize things and that helps us increase our knowledge of these things and even increase our love for them and our appreciation of them. So the Bible is the same way. It's like flowers scattered out over the hillside and all different kinds. Uh, the person who is... Uh, a good botanist will go out and be able to identify the kinds of flowers and identify their characteristics. He will say those things that are common to all of them. He will, he will be to isolate those things that are different from all of them, but then he will be, begin to see that they are divided not only into species, but into genera and into classes and into kingdoms and so forth. And he will organize this. You can organize your 
understanding of nature to get a greater knowledge of it. Well, in the same way, scripture has all these beauties scattered throughout it, but there are many themes that are, are spoken about in different places, simply in some places, more complex in some places, greater revelation in some places, and the person who has the intimate knowledge of divine truth can begin to systematize all of these things and say this is the biblical teaching about creation. This is the biblical teaching about sin and evil. This is the biblical teaching about redemption. And we gain a greater understanding. And so, and so the, the, the Word of God does contain a system of divine truth. Also, <clears throat> what, what will a deep knowledge of the Word of God include? We must, not be, we must be first well grounded in first principles we must not content ourselves with knowing what divine truth is, but we must know the evidence on which it rests. You not, must not merely state what a doctrine is, but you must be able to uncover the biblical evidence that undergirds this doctrine. We must learn truth immediately from the oracles of God. It alone is sufficient. No other book can actually give us authoritative information. Other books can help us think more clearly about the Bible, but it must come immediately from the oracles of God. We must view it in its various connections in the great system of redemption. So the Bible does contain a system. It contains a system of redemption. It can be organized with minute precision for the purpose of more thorough understanding of each of its varied parts. He gives examples of systematizing the elements of providence as found in Scripture. He gives examples of how various doctrines of Scripture relate to each other, sin, atonement, election, justification. In short, by considering principles in their various connections, far greater advances will be made in divine knowledge than by other means. And then <clears throat> he, talks, he has talked about the, the possibility and the necessity of pursuing this knowledge and then he talks about the importance of such knowledge. So the, the, first, the first article that he writes is the nature and importance of an intimate knowledge of divine truth. And he's introduced the idea that we must have a system. <clears throat> and so the second thing that he does is the importance of a true system. Systems are harmful when they are not put in proper proportion to all the doctrines that constitute the system. And he had been dealing with that. He dealt with that in Arminianism. He dealt with that in Hyper-Calvinism. There were some things true, but there were some things exaggerated, taken out of their proper place. False conclusions were drawn by a, a sort of a, an extrapolation of certain doctrines into ways that the Bible would not advocate. And so everything must be put in its proper proportion for the, doctrine, for, the, for the doctrines to constitute a true system. Election is wonderful, but can be made damaging if it's made into an excuse for carelessness or arrogance. He illustrated by atonement in connection with the law of God and the person of Christ. He looked at the, at the necessity of divine influence for repentance and faith. And so a true system must be a system that where there's proper proportion, where we see the proper connections between all of the doctrines. 
Now, as for him, if he wants to see the proper connection of all the doctrines, he wants to produce what he thinks is a true system. He knows there are many ways that people have constructed these systems. But he wanted to look at everything through the lens of the person and work of Christ. To believe the truth concerning Jesus is to believe the whole doctrine of the scriptures, he says. Reflecting on Matthew 16, Peter's confession, Fuller wrote, Upon this principle as a foundation, Christianity rests. And it is remarkable that to this day, deviation concerning the person and work of Christ is followed by a dereliction of almost all other evangelical doctrines and of the spirit of Christianity. In his polemic against Socinianism, Fuller wrote, It is not so in our view of things. We find so much use for Christ, if I may so speak, that he appears as the soul which animates the whole body of our divinity, as the center of the system, diffusing light and life to every part of it. Take away Christ, nay, take away the deity and atonement of Christ, and the whole ceremonial of the Old Testament appears to us as little more than dead mass of uninteresting matter. Prophecy loses all that is interesting and endearing. The gospel is annihilated or ceased to be that good news to lost sinners which it professes to be. Practical religion is divested of its most powerful motives, the evangelical dispensation of its peculiar glory, and heaven itself of its most transporting joys. So he wanted the center of his theology to be the person and work of Christ. <clears throat> then uh, the, 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 the first real... Uh, a manifestation of, 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 of doctrine, therefore, these have been introductory, is the being of God. In thinking of the cross, one must look to three things. And this is the way that he will build his, his theology. One, what is presupposed by it, what is included in it, and what arises out of it. So every doctrine, he wants to include that. What is, what is presupposed in this doctrine what is actually included in the doctrine, and what arises out of it. Under the first, Fuller looks to the being of God. He argued in a presuppositional way and assuming from Romans 1 that resistance to belief in and reverence for God is, not an, is an issue not of mind and understanding, but of heat and affections. He also looks at the great reverence and worship set forth by the biblical writers concerning God and how we see the mercy of God and the glory of God finally work out in the work of Christ. It is the infinitely happy God pouring forth his happiness upon miserable sinners through Jesus Christ. And so eventually he wants to talk about the attributes of God, but he wants to finally center his discussion of God and his attributes as, as finding their, their full manifestation in the person and work of Christ. The necessity of a divine revelation is the next topic. Men were as morally unable to write such a book as they were naturally unable to create the heavens and the earth, he says. A special revelation is needed for men to have, uh, is needed for, for men have perverted the revelation of nature. A review of the insufficiency of human reason to obtain from the mere light of nature a competent knowledge of God and his will concerning us is necessary. The necessity of revelation also further appears in its relation to faith. In talking of the ways in which the rays of divine revelation may penetrate to the heart, Fuller says, strangely, in reflection on Cornelius and the Magi, and this is a little section, I hadn't quite worked through this in my mind yet, but he says, faith may exist 
while as yet there is no explicit revelation of the Savior. That's one of those, like, what? Where did that come from? It's just, and he's talking about why did the Magi come to the manger? What was there that they, they knew? How is Cornelius praying? Well, the answer that I have is that the Magi knew something of the, of the prophecies from the Old Testament and that Cornelius was quite familiar with the Jewish religion and he knew that they promised a Messiah and he was wanting to know who this was. And he knew that there were certain moral qualifications, moral ideas that this Old Testament had and so he was trying to give alms. And, well, anyways, I, 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 I'm, this is a, this is a, public, a puzzling statement. Uh, to me, but I don't allow it to just sort of wash out all the theology of, of Fuller. It's, it's something that is tentative with him. Uh, but anyway, he, he, he focuses, eventually he focuses all of this again on the, uh, the necessity of a divine revelation co which comes to culmination in the person of Christ. This necessity of revelation is because God is a God of redemption and the whole purpose of Revelation comes to culmination in Christ himself. Then he deals with the inspiration of the Holy Scripture. Guarantees that Scripture is without error, no matter what degree of inspiration was necessary, depending on the kind of narrative. Evidence of inspiration he discussed from consideration, the truth of things contained in the sacred writings, their consistency. Truth in such cases will be found consistent throughout their perfection, being completed, they form a whole, and every part of them is good. In only a single book, you may generally learn from it the leading principles which run through all the rest. Their pungency, it was an interesting idea, they not only prick a sinner in his heart, but stick so fast that he is incapable of extracting them. And he talks about their utility. Looks at Psalm 119, the law, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Their constant utility, these principles that, that work themselves out uh, in uh, practical ways. Uh, so then the next topic, he's looked at the being of God as a topic, the necessity of a divine revelation as a topic, the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The next one is the uniform bearing that the Scriptures have on the person and work of Christ. Though we must not, in a fanciful and extravagant way, in a quixotic way, as he says, drag in Christ on all occasions, and he also speaks against the use of, of allegory, un unwarranted allegory, in, in his, his thoughts on preaching. He says, but, but we must recognize that the book is about him. If we properly understand, all of it will lead us to Christ. Uh, the, <clears throat> the one, that is the Old Testament, abounds with prophecies. The other relates to their accomplishment. The ordinances of the former, the Old Testament, were prefigurative. Those of the latter are commemorative. But both point to the same object. Every divine truth bears a relation to him. Hence, the doctrine of the gospel is called the truth as it is in Jesus. Well, the next topic he deals with is the perfections of God. He says they are natural and moral perfections. He describes them. 
He says, Christ is the full display of the image of God. The only display of the divine perfection which can be denominated perfect is in the salvation of sinners through the obedience and death of His beloved Son. It is thus that every perfection in the divine nature, natural and moral, is declared. Wisdom and power, faithfulness and justice and love and mercy, all meet and blend their rays in the person and work of Christ. The last one that he got to do was the Trinity. <clears throat> Here he shows the strategic elements of compelling biblical evidence for God's singularity and simplicity of essence manifest necessarily and eternally in three persons bearing all the distinctions of personhood. He enters into the idea of an economic Trinity. He says an economical Trinity or that which would not have been but for the economy of redemption is not the Trinity of the scriptures. It is not a trinity of divine persons, but merely of offices personified. But such is not the language of Scripture, nor the representation we have of the relation of each person of the trinity to the other. Fuller affirms eternal uh, generation. He says the Holy Spirit is not the grand object of ministerial exhibition, but Christ himself is in his person, work, and offices. Well, he didn't get to write anymore. He died before he did that. <clears throat> um, Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.